morning from John 17, beginning in verse 13, 17, 13 to 21. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's pray. God, we again just thank you for what you have revealed here of yourself through your word and the privilege we have, Lord, to know you and to walk in truth with you because your word is true. We never have to doubt it. We never need to question it. But Lord, I pray that we would have hearts yielded and hungry, that we would receive in faith all that you have said to us, that we would yield our wills, Lord, to your clear word, and allow you to do in us, God, in accordance with your word. So we pray that you would use this time in our lives, God, for your name's sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to thank um, Vincent and Clay for feeling, fill, filling in for me while Patsy and I were gone. Appreciate them very much doing that. Uh, we've been up in Pennsylvania for the last couple weeks, Funk Land up there, Funkville. Um, there's lots of funks up there. Patsy a, was a funk, if you don't know that. They have a, a camp tradition there, um, 126 years now that they've been conducting this camp, which sits in a cornfield there in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And there are almost 200 little white cabins they're all about three to four feet apart from each other. Um, no uh, bathrooms in them, no air conditioning. And so I thought I would lose weight this past week by jogging to the bathroom every night, at least once, sometimes more often. I mean, no, it didn't happen. They play quates, um, wa- horse, no, quates, we play horseshoes, they don't. Washers and Bean and um, cornhole. So those are kind of the big games up there. Lots of that. And they eat lots and lots and lots of ice cream. <laughs> it was a good time. So before I left, we had um, already, I think it's been three Sundays, looking at the nature of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Um, and we've looked at, at some of the topics of bibliology, and the first one is revelation, that God must make known, God reveals. And then we looked at inspiration. You remember, inspiration is the means that God uses 
for the recording of his revelation. It is the activity of God, inspiration is. It is solely the activity of God. It is not the activity of men, but men are used. God uses men to record his revelation. But what is being inspired is not the authors, but it is what they are authoring. The word of God, the scriptures are inspired, not the writers of scripture. And the doctrine of inspiration pertains to the entirety of scripture, not just portions of it, but all of it. And also the very words themselves. So not just the thoughts behind the words, but the actual words themselves are inspired by God. And this is a, a doctrine that runs throughout Scripture. And so the literal, literal word inspired from, that's used in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired of God. Now the word inspiration is used in more than that one verse, but that verse, the word for inspiration is used only there in the Bible. And it literally means breathed by God. And so it means that, these, that the words in our text actually are God's words. They came from Him, and they have been recorded as His words. And so this means that, that, that everything is, is non-negotiable in terms we do not have the right or the privilege to, to, when we translate Scripture, to come up with something that we think is more, maybe more politically correct. Um, we have to leave it as it is. Every single word came from God. So whether it's singular or plural makes a difference. Whether it's masculine or feminine makes a difference. We can't mess with these things if we believe in the doctrine of inspiration that it all came from God. All of it and every single word. Ultimately, this means that our view of Scripture influences all doctrine. And so the last time I was with, with y'all here, I put up on the overhead some doctrinal statements from various seminaries and including Bernie Bible Church. And in almost all of them, their doctrine of Scripture comes first in their doctrinal statement. Number one, their doctrine of Scripture. And that's because they believe, as they should, that what we believe about Scripture influences everything else that we believe. So all doctrine ultimately builds upon the doctrine of Scripture. The authority of the Bible rests ultimately upon the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. So what I didn't tell you is um, I went through in my looking at various schools, seminaries, and their doctrinal statements, um, I looked at the... Um, Perkins Seminary, which is the seminary for the United Methodist Church um, in Dallas, Texas, on the campus of SMU University. And I knew when I was a student in Dallas that Perkins had the reputation for being a very liberal seminary. Well, when you look for their doctrinal statements, you get an idea of just how liberal they are, because there is no doctrinal statement. Perkins Seminary when I searched their whole website the best I could, has no doctrinal statement. And that has to be, in my estimation, because they, many years ago, rejected the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. So if you have punted on the, on the Bible is the actual Word of God, well, then the logical conclusion is you really have nothing authoritative to say. 
And a doctrinal statement is an authoritative statement on what a particular group of people believe. But if you don't have the scripture, you have no doctrinal statement that you can legitimately stand on. Because it's just words that are built on nothing. If the foundation of what we believe is not scripture, then there is no foundation. And everything is up for grabs. And so I was actually, you know, one part of me kind of impressed that they at least are no longer playing the game, that they believe in something when they don't. Once you stop believing the Bible is the Word of God, then there's really nothing that is, has a firm foundation. It is just words. And they have no doctrinal statement. From what I could tell, I searched their website. That's pretty amazing. On the other hand, the other extreme, not extreme, just the other end of the spectrum, I, I, one seminary that I didn't look at, that I'm glad I did, was Master's Seminary. And man, they have a tremendous doctrinal statement on Scripture, probably the best that, that I've read. And they're more, a more recent seminary, and so they um, have realized the battle that's going on for Scripture. It's been going on for quite a while, and they've done a tremendous job formulating their doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of Scripture. So, having said all that, it is clear that the Bible witnesses to its own inspiration, and it is a a logical um, um, conclusion to come to, as I put up on the overhead, God um, cannot err, premise one. Premise two, the Bible is the Word of God. So therefore, the Bible is without error. That is just a very simple, logical conclusion to come to. This is not extreme. It is not an a priori um, belief. It is not a leap into the darkness. This is simple, clear teaching of God's Word. It is simple logic that if God spoke it and God doesn't make errors, then the Bible is without error. So, do we have any proof, any evidence that would support that? So what I want to do this morning is is to just list, and this is not exhaustive, um, but to list some of the evidences that we have that the Bible is indeed the inspired Word of God. I got this in seminary, and, and since that time long time ago now, um, in, in my studies, I have read various books on this subject. Um, many of them have their own list of evidences for the inspiration of Scripture. And there's a lot of overlap. So these are things that basically you can find in, in, in lots of different sources. And at the top of, of the list of the evidence that the Bible is more than merely a human book, This book's different. You're here this morning probably because you already believe that. It's already made its impact upon you. And so at the top, doesn't mean it's necessarily the most important one, but it's the one that most readily often comes to mind when we think about the unique nature of Scripture, is its authority. There is no book that speaks with the authority of Scripture. When Jesus, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, finished that sermon, they said, this is really, really different. And they specifically cited the authority that Jesus was speaking with. 
No people speak with this kind of authority. And the scripture has tremendous authority. You remember when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil on those three occasions. And each time after the temptation, Jesus responded by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. He did not rebuke the devil. He did not bind the devil. He didn't cast the devil out. Which are all things that maybe can happen. But what Jesus simply did was stand against the devil by quoting the truth of God's word. And the, and the devil left him. Jesus won. It has authority over the devil. Now that may not seem like a big deal. Unless you're battling the devil. Right? And in those moments, and I happen to think probably we all are, are, are battling the devil more than we realize. And there are things that, thoughts that enter our head that are not from God. And you wonder where they're coming from. And we know from Scripture that the character of the devil is to steal and kill and destroy. And we're having thoughts of self-destruction. Those thoughts didn't come from God. It came from the devil. And you can't conquer those thoughts by simply trying to take your thoughts captive, by pushing back, because the enemy is the devil, and we're not big enough. Jesus didn't try to fight the devil on any means other than, any basis other than the Word of God. That is instructive for us. When we are in a satanic, demonic battle, we should do as Jesus did. Come to God's word. Speak the truth. And I've come to believe, and I can't go to chapter and verse to support this, but I do look at the example of Jesus and what he did. I believe that there are times, if not for the devil's sake, for our own sake, we need to, to verbally speak the truth of God's word for our own sake. We need to hear ourselves speak the truth of what Scripture says. And the devil will flee. He will indeed flee. The devil is very active in this world. And the one thing he hates more than anything else is the Word of God. That's why we even have to have sermons on this topic. Because the devil's always saying, has God really said? And so we refute that question with the Word of God itself. It has the authority to refute error, the authority to teach, the authority to judge, convicts, condemns. Secondly, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is a doctrine or, or a subset of the, of the doctrine of bibliology all on its own. This is more subjective. It's hard to, to, to clarify it like we would want. But, this, but the Holy Spirit himself tells us this is God's word. Just as the Holy Spirit bore witness through the miracles that Jesus was the Son of God. See, the blasphemy against the Spirit was when people looked at the miracles that Jesus was doing and said, this isn't the Holy Spirit. This is Satan. The Spirit was testifying through miracles that Jesus was the Son of God. And when they said, it's not 
he isn't the Son of God. They were blaspheming the Spirit. When the Spirit says the Word of God, these, these words are the actual words of God, and we say they are not. We are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This is why that quote that I gave um, a couple Sundays ago, where it says, invocation of the authority of the Spirit to contradict the authority of the Scriptures threatens to become the particular blasphemy of the present age. If the Spirit of God says, this is our authority, and He does, and we say our authority is the Spirit of God, not this book, we are saying something different than the Spirit of God says. We are saying the Spirit is wrong. And that's blasphemy. So it's a very, very important thing to listen to what the Spirit is saying about this book. Third, the transforming power of Scripture has the power to change lives. Truly, truly does. I have the privilege of seeing this compressed, this process of God changing lives compressed into nine months every year at His Hill. It is amazing to see what God does. And it is not because of me or the staff at His Hill. I know that. It is simply God's Word. Teach it, speak it, and lives are changed. And you feel, as I've said many times, like simply a spectator. Like you are watching God at work. And all you're doing is exposing people to the Word of God, and God's Word does its job. And it's unique in each person's life, miraculous in its power, and undeniable. This person is not what they were. And there is no program they went to. It's simply the power of God through Scripture to change their lives. It is living and active. It convicts of sin. It awakens the conscience And it regenerates the sinner. It is powerful. There is nothing else like it. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Paul says, I'll never be ashamed of it. There is nothing else in this world that is going to truly change a person's life like God's word. Anybody in your life, you want to see them changed? What's going to bring that about? God's word. And if they are not sitting under God's word, coming to God's word, humbling themselves before God's word, there's not going to be any change. This is the agent that the Spirit of God uses to bring about that change. The word of God. It's not different with anybody. That's why, you know, even when we, when we go to counseling, and, and there is definitely a place for that. And I believe God gifts people as counselors. But if that counselor is not bringing us to the truth of God's word... It is a waste of time and money. God's word brings about the change. One of the things, and this is to me so powerful, that speaks to the inspiration of Scripture is simply the unity of Scripture. This is not one book, it is 66 books. Not written by one man, but written by over 40 men. Not written in one year, 
but written over 1,500 years. Not written in one language, but in three different languages. Not written in one place, but in many places. Now, I challenge you to go to any library and choose 66 books on the same topic, maybe even by one author, and find that they all 66 books agree on that topic. Because one author, if he's written that many books, I guarantee you sooner or later he's contradicted himself. There are no contradictions in the scripture. 66 books written over 1,500 years of time in three different languages in multiple locations, and there is not a single contradiction between them. That is impossible unless there is, in fact, one author, God, who does not make errors. There's no other way to account for it. I mean, I mean again, it, it just, it's, it's so simple that it just goes right by us. This is supernatural. When the Bible speaks of sin, when the Bible speaks of the solution to sin, when the Bible speaks of our Savior, when the Bible speaks of the person of God, there is absolute consistency on every page of Scripture. You cannot find 66 books on theology anywhere that agree with each other. But this book is without contradiction. It speaks to it being the Word of God. The accuracy of Scripture. Every time, it's right. So the sociologists might say one thing. Anthropologists might say something else. And then the archaeologist comes around and does his dig, and he goes, the Bible's right. And everybody else is wrong. There has never been an inaccuracy proved in Scripture. And there have been many, many times when people have said, for example, years ago it used to be that people said Moses could not have written the Pentateuch because they didn't have written language at the time. Well, now everybody just laughs at that because archaeology has confirmed that there was written language many years before Moses. There is, there is simply no inaccuracies in Scripture. Everything the Bible speaks on, it speaks with 100% accuracy. You can't find a math textbook in the United States that speaks with 100% accuracy. It doesn't exist. So this fall, all the public school kids are going to go back to school here in Texas, and they're all going to be given books, unless you go to Comfort and they don't give the kids books. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> they don't go home with books. They only have enough books for, to, to keep at the school. Um, every one of those books that the school children of Texas is going to get, every one of them will have wrong statements in it. Every one of them. There is not a single wrong statement, inaccurate statement in Scripture. Supernatural. It's evidence that God did it. When we look at what, if you believe that Jesus is who he is, 
it should settle every question you ever have about Scripture. Because what Jesus said about Scripture is that it cannot be broken. It endures forever. It is God speaking. It is the commandment of God. And the Holy Spirit inspired the authors. So why do we even have the debate? If we believe Jesus is who he claims to be, then we should believe what Jesus says about the Word of God. Often, for many of us as Christians, one of the favorite proofs that we have for the inspiration of Scripture is the fulfillment of prophecy. And it is amazing. Other religious books have portions that are prophetic. The Bible has huge sections that are prophetic. When we speak of the Old Testament, we usually talk of it as the law and the prophets. So basically, the majority of the Old Testament falls in the prophetic section. And then when we look at the New Testament, we have entire chapters that are prophetic. For example, Matthew 24 and 25. And we have the entire book of Revelation that is prophetic. These are not just isolated verses like you might find in other religious texts that deal with prophecy. These are major portions of Scripture, which tells us that God was not hesitant. He was not, not embarrassed or reluctant to speak concerning future things, and to do it often. And every prophecy has been fulfilled with 100% accuracy or we are waiting for it to be fulfilled. No prophecy of Scripture has failed. Not a one. And there are many of them. The Bible has made prophecies concerning Jesus, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, concerning other nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, concerning specific events, the regathering of Israel, the destruction of Tyre, the destruction of Jerusalem, concerning specific people before they're even born and their names are given. Josiah, for example, Cyrus, and others. It's been said, and I don't know, I've never seen the list, but just recently in my reading, One author said, concerning Christ alone, there are 333 fulfilled prophecies. That's a lot of prophecies and a lot of fulfillment. You do the math on that, and I'm not a mathematician, so we'll leave that to Jim Powell. He can figure this out for us. But in the book, The Case for Christ, these facts are cited. Someone did the math and figured out that the probability of only eight prophecies concerning Christ being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion. That number is millions of times greater than the total number of people who ever walked the planet. Eight prophecies. And so then, how, what does that work out? This, well, I like illustrations. How does that, how can I think of that? One hundred, one and one hundred million billion. That would be like taking this illustration here, covering the entire state of Texas in two feet of silver dollars, marking one of them, blindfolding a man and setting him loose 
and say you get one chance to pick up the one marked silver dollar. That is the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus. And there's many more than eight. What if it was 48? The probability of fulfilling 48 prophecies was one chance, and this is going to sound redundant, it is, trillion, 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 trillion. I said that 13 times. One in trillion times 13. How big a number is that? That's equal to the number of minuscule atoms, atoms, the number of atoms in a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of our universe. That's a big number. (laughs) That is the odds of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies. And again, this one author says 333. So when a person comes to the Bible and says, I do not believe it is the word of God, that is foolishness. There is so much evidence. If we only had fulfilled prophecy, that is foolishness to walk away from this book and say it is not the word of God. When that many prophecies have been fulfilled, it is amazing. There is nothing else like it. And then, that's just seven evidences for inspiration. Working through my list here. The moral superiority of the Bible. When we compare the Bible with other ancient writings, even other religious ancient writings, it is head and shoulders above everything else. An examination of the books of the Bible reveals its law and its ethics to be greater in terms of family, society, health, everything, as being vastly superior. No book of this high of morality can claim to be God's word and still maintain a consistent morality. Let me put that another way. When you just take out God from the Bible and just read what it says in terms of morality, in terms of ethics, you'd go, this is a unique book. There is no in how women are supposed to be treated, in how children are supposed to be treated, and how you know you just go through even even how sanitation is to be handled, um, in in terms of jurisprudence and and corporal punishment, and you and you you know an eye for an eye that is biblical that is not Islamic. I mean it is crazy what every other religion teaches, and when it comes to punishment, when it comes to justice, it's true that the Western world's Justice system has been built on Scripture. Just a simple principle of an eye for an eye did not come from any other religion. For in every other religion, it's you, you kill your, the whole clan of the guy who killed your brother. You know, it's, it's, it is extreme in how things are responded to, not in Scripture. So how can a book have this high of morality and at the same time claim to be God's word, when it, and then in fact it's lying about being God's word. It's not really God's word. You see the inconsistency? 
If it has this high of morality, which a blind person has to see, then it cannot still have that high of morality and claim to be God's word when it isn't God's word, because that's a lie. So some of those other sacred writings, the Quran, I'm just going to read here. The Quran claims to have been brought from heaven to Muhammad piece by piece by the angel Gabriel, containing a few pious sentences together with a number of social preoccupations. It bears throughout the marks of a fallible earthly mind. For example, the mountains are supposed to have been created to keep the earth from moving to hold it fast as with anchors and cables. Moses' sister Miriam is confused with the mother of Jesus. Several times Gabriel brings a special revelation from heaven to justify Muhammad, to justify him when he took the wife of his adopted son, when he tried to satisfy all the wives of his harem, and when he appropriated as concubines his relatives and such other captives as pleased him. The Quran likewise establishes the permanent principle of the holy war and promises the faithful the most carnal of paradises. Did you ever think about that? What does God promise the believer in terms of eternity? Fellowship with God. That we would stand before a holy God and fall on our faces and count it our privilege to be in his presence. What does the Quran promise the, holy, the, the faithful follower of Muhammad? 72 virgins in a life of lust. They are so different from each other. But the, differences, the difference between the Quran and the Bible especially shines out in that which the Quran fails to say. The love of God, which in the incarnation suffers with his creatures. No mention of that in the Quran. The holiness which requires his punishment of sin. The expiation of transgressions on the cross, the full assurance of pardon, the regeneration which makes man new, and the spirituality and truth of the whole revealed message. All of this is what is missing from the book of Muhammad. It is far inferior to Scripture. What about the sacred books of the Hindus who happen to believe in 330 million gods? One of the greatest of those gods is Shiva. And is always and everywhere symbolized by the organ of reproduction. I don't need to be more specific. Can you imagine our holy Bible representing God as an organ of reproduction? But that's what the Hindus do in their holy books. The supposition of hundreds of thousands of reincarnations is taught by the Hindus in the form of beast or man until such a time as a nebulous nirvana delivers the individual by bringing an end to his every desire. Once again, in this we find a total absence of a real solution to the problem of sin and misery, of any moving out of the earthly into a pure, liberated life of an absolute righteousness and of a blessed and active eternal state in the presence of God. Here is what we find in the Hindu cosmogony. The moon is 50,000 leagues higher than the sun. It shines with its own light. Again, these are inaccuracies. Remember one of the evidences of inspiration? No inaccuracy. 
Moon's 50,000 leagues higher than the sun. Night is caused by the sun setting behind the mountain. Mountain um, Samaria situated in the middle of the earth and several thousand miles high. Our earth is flat and triangular, composed of seven stages, each with its own degree of beauty, its own inhabitants, its own sea. The first of honey, another of sugar, another of butter, another of wine. These are the oceans, according to Hinduism. The whole mass of the earth is borne on the heads of countless elephants, which shaking themselves cause earthquakes in the netherworld. These are the other religious writings. It's amazing. If we just look at ancient philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, um, Seneca, Pliny, Plutarch, Cicero, every one of them made statements that are absolutely false. And there are no false statements in Scripture. It's a unique book. The influence of the Bible? No other book has had this kind of influence and continues to have this kind of influence. Civilizations have been influenced more by the Judeo-Christian scriptures than by any other book or series of books in the world. And it speaks to all men at all times and never gets old. The eternality of the scriptures. No other book is like that. The indestructibility of the Bible, no other book has been attacked like the Bible has been attacked. And that is not an exaggeration. And yet it still stands strong. And when it comes to actually those who criticize the Bible and approach it from an anti-supernatural bias and say, from the very beginning, we do not believe this book is the Word of God, Christians have always said, bring it on. Because if it's not the Word of God, we would want to know that. We're not afraid of the truth. We don't want to believe in myths and fables. So if this book is not what it purports to be, then we'd like to know that. We are not afraid of the truth. And yet with all the attack, the Bible stands as strong today as as ever. The miracles. Miracles were performed by men who claimed to speak from God as validation of that claim. Why did they perform miracles? To prove they were speaking the words of God. Thus, the Bible is confirmed to be the Word of God by the acts of God. What about the alternative possibilities of how to account for the Bible? Even those point to the uniqueness of Scripture. These are the only alternative possibilities other than the Bible is the Word of God, what it purports to be. First, it could be good men or good angels who wrote the Bible. Just from really good men. Or maybe, like Muhammad would claim, some really good angels came and gave us this book. Really? Then why would they, if that's the case, why would they say God said it? Why would a good man say he, it isn't his words. It's God's words. Good men don't do that. So the other alternative is, it's really bad men, or maybe even demons. Maybe they gave us the book because they wanted to deceive us. Well, why would they condemn themselves in this very book? Doesn't make sense. So when we look at it all and stand back at it, there is 
so much evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. I hope that turns your crank. But I've taught this for years at His Hill as we do a little, little study on bibliology in the spring. And I like that. I, I, I appreciate lists like that. I make my list pretty much every day. So I like lists. But I just, in, in, in the last few weeks, again, just thinking about this topic, it, it just occurred to me, this is very simple, and I don't, it's not profound, just simple. What we're talking about with the inspiration of Scripture is what are the marks of the deity of Scripture. Not that we're saying that the Bible is God, but if God wrote it, then we should look for the marks of God's activity. That's what these evidences are. They are the marks of God's activity. So what, is the, what are the marks of deity on this book? And it occurs to me that many of the things that I've just gone through in that list are the same marks of deity that we see with Jesus Christ. And there is no Christian who denies the deity of Jesus Christ. But there are many Christians who are denying, as it were, the marks of deity on Scripture. When there are the same marks of deity on Scripture that we see on Jesus. So that's why people say you cannot believe in Jesus and deny the Word of God. You you cannot believe the Word of God and not come to Jesus. Now, you're not necessarily going to believe in Him, but you've got to see that the Scripture is telling us and is pointing us to Jesus. For example, what is a mark of deity concerning Jesus? He is without sin. And so is Scripture. He is holy. And so is Scripture. Jesus is the truth. And that's why I read here from John 17 this morning, because Jesus says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is the truth. But Jesus says in John 14, I am the truth. But in John 17, the word is the truth. You see, the same mark of deity that is on Jesus is on Scripture. Authority, we looked at that. Jesus has all authority. Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me. And yet it is the scripture that has authority to convict, to regenerate, to save. Jesus has miraculous power. We'd say, Jesus is God. John says in John chapter 20, These things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. And John was specific about writing about the miraculous things that Jesus did, because they were testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. There are greater miracles than walking on water. There are greater miracles than feeding 5,000 with a boy's lunch. Seeing a soul saved is greater than feeding 5,000 or walking on water. And the Bible has the power to save. That is a mark of deity. Jesus 
In this same passage I read in John 17, says, Father, make them one even as we are one. There is oneness, unity, integrity between Jesus and the Father. And again, we see that same mark of oneness, unity with Scripture. So when we see no contradiction between the 66 books, we should expect that because there's no contradiction between the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one. 66 books, one. Jesus knows all things. And we're told that in Scripture, every word is true. Revealing the hearts of men. Dividing between thought and intention. Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word is eternal. Jesus saves and sanctifies. And yet the Bible says, Scripture saves and sanctifies. Jesus is our rock. And the Bible says, it is our rock. Build upon the rock of my words, Jesus says. Jesus restores the soul. And the scripture says it restores our soul. God is the source of encouragement and perseverance, Romans 15. And yet in the same passage it says, through scriptures we have perseverance and encouragement. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And yet the Bible claims to be the wisdom of God. Jesus is the power of God. And the Bible claims to be the power of God. The marks of deity on Jesus are the marks of deity on the Word. And again, I'm not saying the Bible is our God. But if God wrote it, you would expect to see the marks of deity on it. It is amazing what God has given us. Other than our salvation in Jesus Christ and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, there is no greater gift that we have than this book. And we can have absolute confidence in it. I'll close us in prayer.